Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gautier. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Canon with Roland Reyes, well engineer at Synergy, who uh, actually is currently working for one of the major operators in the Gulf of Mexico. Roland, how you doing today, man? It's Friday. You ought to be happy about that. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, no one could be disappointed with a Friday. You know, so. <laughs> nice. Well, you told me you took the day off, man. Hopefully you didn't take a full day off just to come here and hang out with me because, you know, you'd have to set your, set your bar a little higher than that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, on the podcast. Do you listen to podcasts? To be honest, I hadn't until you kind of invited me. And so I listened to a few episodes and I thought it was kind of great. You know, Cool. Perfect. Gives, uh, I think it's a great platform and kind of allows people to show a little bit more of their personal side. So I think that's it's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of times, you know, we just, you know, people hear names or they see people on LinkedIn and and what a lot of people are interested in is like what drives people you know what what yeah, you know yeah. want let, i would like to hear this person you know in a conversation cuz you know what you see on you know whether it's the internet or social media or even you know in a in a business setting right. is a lot different than just kind of sitting in and kind of shooting the shit so yeah i appreciate you coming on and and the reason i reached out to you is you know you're pretty active on linkedin and and oftentimes you have some really good insight whether it be, you know, articles that you'll comment on and you publish some stuff on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I just thought it'd be great to have you on. Appreciate you taking the time. I'm assuming you have never been on a podcast before. So I'm like, we're essentially popping the cherry there, right? <laughs> That's right. Nice, nice. So you don't listen to podcasts. Are you a music guy or do you, when you're driving, I mean, what do you do when you're driving? Because nowadays it's funny because most people just like, I barely listen to music. I listen to podcasts or you know, radio this or that. So right, like, right. are you a music guy then or what? I mean, I love music. I kind of started getting into music when I was like in middle school and high school and stuff. Oh, no I way. was in band. I played drums. Nice. And so I, I love music. And so like for the longest time, I would just listen to music, right? Yeah, yeah. And and so after college, when I started working, you know, when you, whenever you have like a 20 minute commute, eventually, you know, listening to the same songs or whatever, it kind of gets a little bit old sometimes. And so I yeah. thought, you know, hey, let me start looking up like different podcasts and try to, you know, do something, you know, that feeds my own mind in that, you know, 20 minute time. Right. So, yeah, I mean, lately I've been listening more and more podcasts for sure. There so. you go. So you you were in a band, was it the school band or did you have your own band? Both. Yeah, no yeah, yeah. So back at home. Yeah. So, yeah. Where's home? You say back at uh, home. South Texas. Okay. So, and when I, it's funny because in Houston or even in Austin, you know, and I would say South Texas, a lot of people say like, oh, oh, you mean San Antonio, right? And I'm like, no, man, like, more south <laughs> and then they would go oh so like corpus right yeah so I'm like no more south more south so no kidding so like, where's uh, where's south texas to you then like i don't know if you've heard of uh the valley yeah so it's literally almost like near the border of mexico so. okay cool so, yeah so that's where i grew up okay you know? is that most of your family still there just my dad right now okay yeah, yeah. very cool do you go back oh yeah. yeah yeah no it's a fun town i mean it's South Padre is right there too, which is really nice. So I've heard, but I've never been. It's kind of like that's where like a lot of the Texans go for spring break. That's right. right that's right. Nice. Yeah. Did you partake in all the activities down in South Padre? Back in the day, I did. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think I aged out now. So, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I could ask you some more stories, but I'm sure that's uh, another story for another day. <laughs> but uh, I've heard it's a great time, and so 
you know, maybe one day when my kids grow up, I can go down there with them and show them how to party. <laughs> there you go. Right. Well, before we get going into the weeds, I want to take a quick break. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do me a huge favor to take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated. Like I always say, it's you know good or bad. It just kind of helps me plan my business. And also, if you feel like you have a great story, an idea for a show, or simply just any questions for the listeners that I've had on or for the people that I've interviewed, hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm always on there. And hell, if you want to grab a coffee and hang out, I'm down for that too. I'm always uh, interested in drinking coffee, which you probably already know. So, well, Roland, you already talked a little bit about, you know, time, you know, you did band growing up in South Texas, but before getting into the oil field, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you kind of transitioned into getting into the oil field. Yeah, sure. And thanks for having me on again. Absolutely. Just a quick disclaimer before we kind of get into the meat of, of things. I just wanted to say that, you know, these opinions are mine and not my employers. Sure. So, yeah. So with that said, like I said, I grew up in, in South Texas. Growing up, I really, really, you know, was naturally curious in math and science. And so I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do in my life. I just knew I really liked, you know, my math classes and science classes to the point that, you know, I even competed like in competitions as well, like outside of school. No way. In, in Tell us about science. that. That's crazy. Yeah. So I don't know if if this exists in other states outside of Texas, but in Texas there was like this uh, UIL, like uh, University Interscholastic League, where they would have math competitions for middle school and high school kids. What? Yeah, so there was uh, like three different math events. One was called like Number Sense, one was called Calculator, and then one was just like a general math competition. Okay. And so in middle school, I think it was seventh grade, you know, we qualified for the, the state competition and I won first place in one of the events. I can't even remember now, to be honest. Okay. So yeah, so that was I was super into it. I'm, I'm a super competitive person just yeah. by nature, I think. Sure. And so it's something I, I really liked with math and science. I kind of took to that even at a young age. So. No kidding. So describe when you say like a, like a competition, is it like there's a series of questions, math questions, and whoever can complete them the fastest wins? Or like, how does that work? Yeah, so each one of those, those math events I kind of described, they all had a little bit different format. Right. So one of them, for example, was like a 10 minute test, 80 questions, but you couldn't do any scratch work. It was all like mental math, for example. What? Yeah. Uh, and then one of them, you could use a calculator, but it was like 80 questions in 30 minutes or something like that. I don't remember the exact details, but yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. So that's nuts, man. So you're, you're obviously a lot smarter than myself. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I, I somewhat envious of, of people that, that are super smart like that because going through high school, I always tell people if I spend as much time studying as I did on trying to figure out how to cheat on a test, I'd probably be a lot further <laughs> ahead. But, you know, it's just the nature of the beast. But uh, yeah. that's really neat, man. So you kind of obviously had that math and science background. And, and then, you know, from then on, what, uh, how did, you know, graduate high school? And then what happened after that? So, yeah. So in, in high school, like going into my senior year, you know, I think my mom kind of realized that I wasn't necessarily... I hadn't really decided what I wanted to do with my life, mm-hmm. you know, and she, so she just knew that, you know, I really liked math and science. And so, you know, she kind of approached me one day and, and was like, you know, hey, one of my coworkers, her son works in the oil and gas industry. He's a petroleum engineer. You know, you should consider studying petroleum engineering. And so that's literally how I chose petroleum engineering. You know, I had no okay. context of, you know, the oil and gas industry and everything it took to, you know, get the oil and gas out the ground and yeah. you know, into our pump tanks or anything like that. Sure. And then in South Texas, I hadn't really met anyone growing up that 
had any ties to the oil and gas industry. Which is kind of surprising, right? Because a lot of folks coming out of South Texas, like from that I've met, I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of folks that I've met in the oil and gas industry that are from South Texas. So yeah, yeah. you must have been in like your own little bubble or something. I think so, man. <laughs> I just, yeah, I probably was just like not paying attention to things. Sure. And just like, you know, playing music, doing this math and science thing. So Yeah, good for you, man. And then, because you went to university or UT, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah UT at, in oh, Austin. Nice. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you knew you wanted to go to or was it just one that sort of came up or how'd you end up going there? Yeah, so I think growing up, I always kind of want, I always knew that I wanted to go either to UT or A&M. Okay. And to be honest, so so South Texas is a fairly small town. I mean, it's growing now, but it's nothing compared to like in Austin, for example, right? And so I remember the first time I visited A&M, you know, that was also a small town. And I remember thinking like, I definitely don't want to be here. Like, no offense to, you know, Aggies out there. <laughs> oh boy, you uh, <laughs> started a riot now. <laughs> it was just for me, you know, big, being in a bigger town, to me, that was the, the appeal. I mean, something completely different. Sure. So. No, I can appreciate that. I came, you know, I, re- I grew up in a town relatively small, like 40, 50,000. But the, when I grew up in Vernon, British Columbia and moved to Calgary, mm-hmm. it was so intriguing. And, and when I started working drilling rigs, you know, we stayed at these all, all these little small oil field towns. And being from a, a relatively smaller city, people thought I would appreciate the small town. It's like, no, I want to go to like the big city. You know, it's like right, the big city right. of bright lights. It's like this magical carnival that you drive you know, exactly. up to in, in the night or whatever. But no, I can t- certainly see where you're coming from. So yeah, you started off doing, you, you did petroleum engineering at uh, UT? Yeah, petroleum engineering. Nice. Well, how was your experience there, man? Austin's a pretty unique city. So do you have any good memories or, do, I mean, do you miss it? Do you wish you could go back? No, I mean, Austin's really a great city to be in, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, the classes were, were not easy to, you know, if anyone, you know, took petroleum engineering classes at UT, I think you would, you could relate to that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, school was a lot of fun going to the football games. I was there when Colt McCoy was still there. So that was definitely fun. Nice. So yeah, I think I lucked out there. Yeah, dude, that's <laughs> crazy. So what what year was that? So I graduated in 2011. Okay. So I think it was my junior year that we were in the national championship. Cool. Yeah. What yeah. a neat experience. Yeah. So yeah. That, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Are you a big football fan? I mean, I like watching football. I, I can't say that I follow it as, as much as some people do. Again, know? not typical for Texans. <laughs> Crazy. It's like people bug me because I'm not a huge hockey player. Like I just started oh, okay. and funny. they're like, you don't drink much beer and you don't play hockey. Like what? Huh. You, you are not from Canada. So that's funny. Yeah. It's just some people go against the grain, man. So I get it. I'm a basketball guy. Yeah. So. I love basketball. What do you think about the Westbrook trade? I think it's crazy, man. I did not think that was going to happen. Neither so. did I. I never seen yeah. it coming. Me either. Yeah. I thought it was going to, I thought we wouldn't be able to get rid of the Chris Paul contract, to be honest. Yeah. So team dynamic, how's it going to go down? You think they're going to have to like cut the basketball in half between him and Harden or like, what are they going to do? <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I think they have a good chance to making it work. I mean, they've yeah. kind of known each other since I think they were like 10 years old or something like that. Oh, really? In Oklahoma. Okay, I didn't know that. And, and they played in on the Thunder for a long time, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, I think if they didn't know each other and had no background, it'd be very difficult, especially like their playing style is very ball dominant, right? Right. I don't know. I mean, I think they'll figure out a way whether, I think what will be interesting is to see, you know, who kind of takes that step back, right? I mean, one of them will have to be the lead kind of person and of the other one has to st- take a step back so. and naturally because harden's been there and he's he's basically you know had the team on his shoulders i, I would expect him to to carry that and i would think so yeah. so but but again i don't maybe not i don't know because when they're in oklahoma obviously harden was the sixth man right and right westbrook and garnett i mean they took the world by storm so super interesting i mean at the very least the the rockets ticket sales are going to go through the roof so <laughs> You better start saving your pennies now because I think there's going to be a, quite a few sold out games. 
Oh yeah, uh, for sure, for sure. And of course, being from Toronto, obviously, you know the team's a little broken up now, so it's. Uh, but you guys got your championship. Yeah, you know, so exactly. You can't complain, right? <laughs> we I got mean, our one. Yeah, yeah we'll yeah. see what happens this year. Drake's happy. <laughs> yeah, Drake's loving it. <laughs> I mean, he's riding the high horse now. God knows what he's going to do after, but uh, yeah, I don't know how happy he is with Kawhi, but we'll see what happens. It, I've seen so many memes with like Drake and Kawhi that like. I'm almost sick of it, but it still makes me chuckle every time. I have to keep watching it, man. It's too <laughs> yeah. good. All the Kawhi stuff, his laugh, it's it's too good, man. Yeah, it is, man. Crazy. So anyway, you go to UT, you graduate in petroleum engineering. Did you end up going to Halliburton right away, or how did that all work? Yeah, so right out of college, I kind of got a call from Halliburton, and I came in and interviewed with them. Cool. And so Halliburton, if you're familiar with Halliburton, they kind of have multiple different kind of arms to the company, and a lot of them are you know, they, they purchased, you know, other smaller companies and kind of integrated it all into Halliburton. Yeah. And so one arm of the company is uh, Landmark and they're kind of more of like the software and services arm of the company. Yeah. And so I, I joined Landmark. Oh, no way. Calls. Yeah. Interesting you say that. The company I work for, we use Landmark almost every day for hydraulic modeling. Mm-hmm. And so I remember when I was at CES, we used Landmark, sort of the old version, the old interface you know like that right, change right. it now it's decision space but that's right i give it up to them i think it's a great program and so it's interesting that you actually worked for for that side of it so what did you mm-hmm. do with that so yeah so i was primarily kind of like a consultant and so you know i, I gave trainings and did like mentoring one-on-one engineers from both like the operators as well as the service companies like you mentioned right yeah and so uh, you know a typical day or at least a typical training was you know anywhere from like a half day training on one particular program or it could have been you know, a full week-long training on multiple, spanning multiple programs. Gotcha. So, uh, so wow. yeah, it was a good experience. Yeah, no kidding. So then what happened after that? Yeah, so I was at Halliburton for about three years. And then, you know, while I was at Halliburton, kind of uh, one of my goals was to, to join an operator. And so being at Landmark, I mean, it was great. You got to see a lot. You got to meet a lot of operators and see, you know, the unique problems that they face mm-hmm. day in and day out. Yeah. But it was for such a short period of time, you know, like you would – you think of clever ways to model whatever pr- problem that they're having, right? And, it, and that was kind of, uh, you know, felt good to provide value in that way. Mm-hmm. But then after that week, you know, had no idea what happened to that well that they were working uh, on. Yeah. And so that was kind of unsatisfying in that way, right? I could see that. So, yeah. So I, I joined uh, a midsize operator in Oklahoma, Sandridge. Mm-hmm. And so so that was, that was pretty fun. I mean, that was like the first opportunity where I actually, you know, had that power to make decisions and see a well through yeah so that was really cool nice nice did you were you able to utilize your your experience at Halliburton through Landmark did that kind of help you with regard either whether it was like planning or engineering or, or coming up with solutions that otherwise you wouldn't have been able to without the experience I mean did it did it provide you with sort of a different skill set that was unique I think so to be honest I mean I think if you're if you're not like so deeply involved in like the modeling side, at least in like trillion completions, mm-hmm. it's easy not to realize what some of these softwares can do, right? Sure. And so it's it could be something as simple as, you know, we're we're planning the well path for the well, and you want to keep you know the least amount of tortuosity as possible, right? Like the smaller the dog leg, the easier it is to drill, the easier it is to land casing, stuff like that. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, you don't want to hit nearby wells, anti-collision concerns, stuff like that. And you want to have, you know, the longest, you know, lateral contact in the, in the, uh, in your target horizon. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, with these softwares, you can actually, you know, do just that. You can optimize both, you know, lateral contact as well as, you know, drilling a smoother well as well. 
Yeah. And so there are tools in these programs that you could do both and not necessarily compromise one or the other. Nice. You know, so I think, so yeah, I mean, my background definitely did help, I think. Do you use Landmark or something similar in your day-to-day job now? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so with the operator that I'm kind of the well, this well design engineering role, yeah, we, we use it day in, day out. I mean, you know, drilling wells in the Gulf of Mexico is definitely, you know, some of the most difficult drilling, the most complex wells that you'll see around the world, you know? So yeah. there's a lot of things that, that goes into drilling these wells that on land that you never we would even thought of to that would be a concern, right? No kidding. What and would so, be uh, without getting into the details, sure. like just on a very macro level, like what would be some of the differences between land and offshore that you're kind of describing? Sure. So offshore, I mean, these wells, I mean, they're not all just purely vertical, obviously. I mean, some of them are deviated, but they're not horizontal by any means, at least in the Gulf. Yeah. From what I've seen. But with that said, I mean, you know, these wells could easily be, you know, 30,000, 35,000 TVD. So they're super ultra deep, you know, and because of that, and, and of course in the Gulf, you know, you have the, the, the mud window itself is just a lot tighter, okay. you know? And so because of that, you have to set, you know, so, so many more casing strings in the hole. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and with that, I mean, your clearances, you know, between the open hole and your casing are a lot tighter as well. And so, you know, from a well-designed standpoint, one of the things that we worry about or have to manage is annular pressure buildup. Ah. And that's something that like on land, I had never even heard anyone talk about that. Right. Okay. So annular pressure buildup offshore, you don't necessarily have access to all of the different annuli like if pressure builds up you can't bleed it off offshore. Right. okay yeah right? which is completely different than on land right okay and so that annual pressure buildup you know drives a lot of well-designed decision making essentially makes sense so what is and it's kind of a new term for me but annular pressure buildup i'm assuming between your drill pipe and your open hole there's pressure that builds up so let's say you said you said casing string right yeah and offshore you know you can't since you know the well is so deep you can't cement the surface I mean, maybe the surface casing you can't you can cement the surface okay but any other liner that you run i mean you're not cementing it to surface right and so so between your you know your top of cement and then to the wellhead or to the top of the liner you have that you know that mud volume back there mm-hmm. and then if you're drilling you know either the next hole section or you're pre- once you know you've completed the well and you're producing oil and gas through it mm-hmm. you know you're bringing up a, a lot hotter fluid from downhole right sure and so you're heating up the the annulus and there's nowhere for that pressure to go it just oh, builds okay so yeah so that's like a big concern in terms of like technical design of course so how does how do operators then get rid of that pressure how's that work i mean some of it is just through the design itself okay. whether it's you know the tubing that you pick or the casing that you pick it has to, you know, withstand and have those pressure ratings that you expect. Okay, so you just design well. it to make sure that it can it can handle that those types of pressures, which it, on exactly. land and it's not really as much of a an issue. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. How would you describe, you know, working you know with Halliburton and and they're obviously a large corporation to where you're at now is a large corporation, but the sort of the difference in culture between working for a service company versus an operator. I mean, are there a lot of similarities or would you say it's quite a bit different? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I think in terms of, you know, the, the point of view of the service company versus the point of view of the operator, it's just a different goal, to be honest. Yeah. Right. I mean, with the service company, I think the goal is to, for you to provide a service to the operator to the point that, you know, you do a good job and that you get called back. 
I mean, at the end <laughs> yeah. of the day, that's like the point of it, right? In a <laughs> that's nutshell. That's a great way to put it, yeah. Uh, but then from the operator's point of view, I mean, it's really life of well, right? Yeah. To drill the sweat, like from a drilling point of view, to drill the well economically, safely, right? And then to turn it over to completions or, and then to production reservoir and to give them a quality well for the for the entire life of the well, right? So it's just kind of, a, it's a different goal, I guess. Yeah. I'll say that much. Which changes the point of view and perspective and, and sort exactly. of the approach on everything. So no, I can certainly appreciate that. You know, speaking of, of technology a little bit, what have since starting off after graduation, obviously you went, worked land, now you've been dealing quite a bit with offshore. Have there been any major changes in technology that you've seen, more so on the, on the drilling side, or even if you've had experience with completions? And, and with that, I mean, like, has there been a big, rev, you know, sort of a revolution in technology with drilling, or do you see one coming? I mean, I know automation is constantly brought up, but have right. you experienced anything? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think in terms of technology, I think in, in you know, in one end, we're, we're doing a lot of new things now that we weren't doing, let's say, five years ago, right? Sure. You know, in, in terms of like the drilling side, just like real time drilling automation type of thing. Yeah. You know, we're getting so much data from the rig now, right? Yeah. And, you know, a major goal, and I know a lot of operators are working on this, and not even just, you know, American operators. I know Saudi Aramco and those guys as well are working on like drilling ahead of the bit, right? Okay. And so, so trying to, you know, use machine learning, AI to try to figure out, you know, ahead of the bit, are there any, you know, downhole problems that are imminent, and can we kind of mitigate them ahead of, ahead of the fact, I guess. Yeah. Right. And so that's like a very common thing. And, and I know we've been working on that for a number of years. But with that said, I mean, there are other things that we're kind of still doing the same, you know, way that we're, we were doing it five years ago, right? Yeah. So for example, I don't know if you've heard, there's this technology, robotics process automation, no. RPA. I'm interested though. What and so long story short, at least from what I've seen, it's kind of a glorified like script file where you can it can span multiple programs on your computer like anything that you could do repetitively yeah like any workflows repetitively that you do on your machine you could treat you can train this program to do that like you could say click here type this in pull this from this program enter it in this program so is it kind of like a large and this might be i'm not super technical when it comes to that but it would be kind of similar to like a macro in excel kind of exactly that's kind of how i view it okay but it, but it spans you know it can span multiple programs on your operating system. Sure. Yeah. Holy smokes. That's insane. So obviously efficiencies and time spent doing a lot of manual repetitive labor behind right. the computer obviously would be solved by this program. Right, exactly. No kidding. So yeah. I think, I mean, it's it has a lot of promise, right? And I know that depending on how you're trying to util, utilize this technology, you know, if you're, if you're using it for like more simpler processes, then, then it's, uh, it could be successful, but for more you know, strenuous, multi-day long workflows where things are changing and they're not always standard mm -hmm. and it's not always easy to implement. Yeah. So no, I don't I think we're there that. yet. Yeah. So. We're, we're getting there, right? I mean, that's exactly. the goal with, with a lot of these tech companies. It's interesting you see, you talk about drilling uh, and being able to analyze ahead of the bit. Uh, I have a buddy, I don't know if you've heard his name, Brian Blackwell, but he started a company called Astra Innovations and they've got some really unique AI type stuff where he can essentially from what i understand when he talked to me is they can they can see what's happening 300 feet ahead of the bit hmm. so it's a lot in trial phase and he's got some some pretty solid contracts with some of the one of the majors out there or i would say large caps that 
uh, are very interested in his technology. And, and he used to work at Oxy as a drilling engineer. Okay. And he went on to do some of their, was involved with their business development and sort of like got onto the finance side and was doing really well, like on the fast track to make it to the top. And he's just like basically, you know, hung up his, his hat and said, no, I'm going to go start my own tech company. And and now he's doing really well. So, uh, you know, Brian, I know sometimes you listen out there. I hope you're doing good, buddy. But I had him on the podcast, too, to get him to talk about that. So if you're ever bored and have a few minutes, you should listen to that one because it sounds like that's something that interests you. And he's got some really neat things going on. But anyway, so going back to talking a little bit about technology and AI, I mean, d- does that do things like AI and automation and digitalization play a role sort of in your, in your, in your current role with your current company? I mean, is that something that you see on a daily basis or? I mean, I think with the company I'm, I'm contracting for right now, it's kind of, how should I describe? It's kind of this balance, right? Of trying to optimize for the future. And then at the same time being lean and being able to operate, you know, safely and efficiently today. Mm -hmm. So, it's not easy, I think, for for management to have that mindset to say, hey, I'm going to dedicate resources, I'm going to dedicate people to develop some of these technologies, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, in, in their point of view, it might, it might be like, why what, am I going to dedicate a whole team to try to develop these technologies when I could use them as drilling engineers to plan these wells? Sure. So it's not always easy, I think. Yeah, so. yeah, no, that makes sense. Switching gears a little bit out of the, the technical side of things, I noticed you published a great article uh, on LinkedIn comparing the market cap of tech companies versus oil and gas companies. Uh, I'd love for you to kind of summarize your findings on comparing the two, because I thought that was really neat. And then I think a lot of the listeners would appreciate that. Sure. So yeah, I think it was earlier this year, I think around January, I read this book called Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Okay. And so if you ever have time and and get your hands on that book, I mean, I highly recommend reading it. Noted. So Peter Thiel, he's uh, one of the co-founders of uh, PayPal, actually. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so one of the things that kind of Peter Thiel, there's a chapter in there that he talks about. He uh, talks about why tech companies are valued the way they are. Okay. Right? And so he kind of has an example in there of, I don't know what company he used. I think it was LinkedIn of how, you know, they could produce, you know, negative cash flow for, let's say, five years, 10 years still have like a huge market valuation and i thought that was fascinating you know yeah and we're seeing it quite a bit right with like oh yeah you saw it with uber and lyft and exactly um, exactly you know pinterest and of slack now recently mm-hmm. but anyway keep going so, but yeah, uh, it's common now it's crazy so yeah so the uber example that's kind of i think what spurred me to to write this article right so if you've ever met me i'm kind of a, a big proponent of linkedin and so anyway I, i've been starting to write these articles on linkedin just kind of to me, that's interesting to do and to provide value for people. So anyway, you know, I, one day I started, I think this was around May and it was around the time of the Uber IPO. And I started seeing, you know, oil and gas people kind of commenting, like bemoaning the fact that, hey, you know, Uber's IPO and, and their, their market cap is so huge. They've been around, let's say, for 10 years or so with almost no positive cash flow. <laughs> yeah. How come their market cap is so much higher than, let's say, an oil company that provides positive cash flow? You know, so I think their point of view was, you know, this company, Uber, doesn't provide value, though the market cap's high. And then you have an oil company that provides real value to, you know, folks around the world. Yeah. This doesn't make sense, right? Right. You think it's it's kind of backwards, right. in a sense. Exactly. Seems counterintuitive, right? Sure. And so, yeah, so I just kind of wanted to comment on that and on why it appears that way. Okay. Right. And so, long story short, and, and Peter Thiel goes into this into it with his book, right? the reason why these tech companies are able to have that type of market capitalization 
is because of this this concept of being able to have monopolistic cash flows into the future, so, hmm. right? And so, I mean, when I say monopolistic cash flows, we're talking about let's say eighty percent of a given market. If you're able to capitalize that, right? But you let's say your positive cash flows don't start coming in until year fifteen or something, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, so it justifies for them at least, you know, having the first ten years of, of zero cash flow. Interesting. Right? And but it could, it could be hard to understand, right? I mean, the same story with Tesla. We're seeing the same thing. Yeah, so. I know people. It's it's hard for me as you know, I don't come from the you know finance world, or I don't really don't have a huge grasp on a lot of that, but from the outside in just the fundamentals sometimes don't make sense to me and i know there's a lot of moving parts and and things that get dealt with you know wall street and and kind of how it's all tied in it's very fascinating to me and so you know seeing things like you know articles and stuff that you published and you know that's a great book actually i i've I've heard of it and and i'm probably going to download it and and listen to it because i normally would try and read books at night but with my son being eight months old and my daughter coming into our room every two hours <laughs> she's almost four it's hard to read in bed because all they want to do is play so i get most of my reading slash listening done in the car but gotcha, um, gotcha. yeah no that that's a good little tidbit so do you see like do you think there's gonna be a lot more i mean because it was kind of like the hype of 2019 was like big ipos by tech companies like do you think there's more down the pipeline that are just going to continue to come or is it going to is that like a bubble that's going to burst like what are your thoughts on that i mean i think it's a bubble that's going to burst so the thing with these tech ipos right and the the concept of this monopolistic cash flow is that it's high risk high reward right and Mm -hmm. so you kind of saw this with google right google's the number one search engine yeah whoever the number two is i mean they're they're very far off, right? Yeah, who is it number two? Bing? I don't, I don't even know. Right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, in Microsoft, even... that's a good example, right? Microsoft's a big company. Yeah. But Google had such a big head start in terms of like network effects yeah. that they couldn't catch up, right? Do you know with just regards to Uber and Lyft, like what the market cap, and I know Uber is a lot more international than Lyft is, but are they, do they have, they still have the majority of the market share still, right? With I mean, that? they do have a, a I don't know the, the exact number off the top of my head. I know they have a lot of market share and, and Uber does have a lot of revenue, but they're spending a lot, mm. right? But the reason why they're spending, which again, I think sometimes seems counterintuitive, the reason why they're spending is because they need to invest for this future to build out those network effects, Yeah. right? And so if they don't spend now, they're not going to be able to have monopolistic cash flow in the future. Gotcha. Right. Do you think they'll ever be companies like not necessarily them but just in general do you think they'll ever be in a positive cash flow environment to where they're not just bleeding all the time like tesla well that's the that's the goal right i mean even even amazon you know i don't know how many years they were didn't produce cash flow but mm-hmm. even amazon was the same way right? okay and then now you know slowly but surely it's it's inevitable right like amazon's going to take over so much of like the retail it's crazy. Like we're seeing it already and it's just started, I think. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a whole different way of uh, the whole economic system is kind of getting flipped around. It's, or at least it kind of appears like that for me, but have you done any recent articles on something similar or, or is that, was that, cause that was one of the ones that really captivated me, but are there any out there that you think that the listeners should, should really click on that you think is kind of little, uh, it's kind of taken, you know, something that's really interesting to you in terms of like finance, anything financial related, I think that one was the first one I wrote. I am planning on writing another one focused more on like technical analysis. Cool. So if, I don't know if, if you're not aware of what technical analysis is. It's essentially looking at the price of either a stock or a commodity and how it got there and to try to, and using plots and charts, trying to figure out, you know, where do I think the price is going next? Darn. And so it's kind of, 
I know it sounds like it's a little bit of like crystal ball type of thing, but it, it's kind of the science behind it has to do with like human human emotion and kind of a group think type of thing. So. Interesting. So are you able, I mean, obviously with your, you have a great background in health, uh, math and science, are you able to somehow like quantify a lot of that stuff that you're talking about? Like with the human aspect? So I'm not like an expert by any means. Sure. To me, I just thought it'd be a great article to provide for, you know, oil and gas engineers and professionals just to give them like a peek behind the curtain, I guess, like a 101 crash course. Like what is technical analysis, right? Yeah. And so in terms of, like I've, I've seen videos of guys, you know, kind of breaking down a chart and they'll say, well, I think this has a 50% chance of, you know, dropping by 30% or whatever. Yeah. But in terms of where they're getting those numbers and how to quantify it, I'm not sure. Sure. So it's kind of, uh, it's a, I think it's kind of more of a risk game, right? Yeah. No, that's neat, man. I, I, I like that. I can't wait for that to come out because I always enjoy reading, you know, stuff on LinkedIn, things like that. There's always... It's neat the amount of information, you know, essentially for free that we can get nowadays. Oh, so yeah. for it's guys great, like man. yourself who like to write and who do the research, man, I applaud you. Speaking of, you know, just the oil and gas market in general, I mean, it's the M&A market is facing some some new challenges. I mean, it's and then I mean, going further, like what are your thoughts on on how companies now are having to shift focus from, you know, growth by any means necessary to now actually being pressured to give returns back to investors? Is that do you think oil and gas companies are, are changing for, you know, for the better and for the long term? Or is this just kind of a phase because the market's going through some cycle? No, that's a very good question. I mean, to be honest, I think that the the mindset of, you know, prioritizing returns and cash flow today versus, you know, in the future, I think that's not going to change anytime soon, in mm-hmm. my opinion. And that's purely based on, and again, this is just my opinion, I think that's based on, you know, how the general public market views oil and gas and the oil and gas industry. I think that there's this opinion that, you know, oil demand, it just keeps flattening into the future, right? Okay. And so some people might argue that, you know, peak demand is coming in the, in the near term, right? Versus I think before oil crashed in 2014, 2015, you know, I think it wasn't so obvious where, you know, peak demand would come in. And so I think that's really is what is the big change in 2019 versus let's say 2014. I gotcha. Gotcha. What are your overall thoughts on the EMP market for the remainder of the year? Anything coming down? I mean, obviously we're seeing some consolidation. Is that, do you think more and more people are going to start consolidating? I mean, I think they're trying is the thing. So it's just, it's difficult right now to, if you're a smaller company, you know, and you're wanting to exit and if you're not, you know, necessarily in the, uh, what the market perceives as the prime basin, then it's not going to be easy, I think. Yeah. And so, so yeah, it's, it's definitely, definitely a tough time for a lot of companies, big and small. Mm-hmm. And if you are, you know, operating today, I think the priority is to survive and to, to provide a free cash flow today. Mm-hmm. And it, but at the same time, like if you have the, you know, if you have that flexibility to invest in the future, you have to do that as well. Right. Yeah. Because if the market is wrong on when peak oil demand and that's, the demand side of the curve when that shift occurs if they're wrong it's people that did invest into the future that will also win in the future so i got you i got you with regards to different basins like you know we just saw the carrizo and callan buy and it looks like callan got a little bit of eagle Ford and and from just looking at the numbers and kind of everyone's kind of diving into the permian and they have to take a lot of these you know the low-hanging fruit and, and perhaps they'll maybe dish off the eagle Ford stuff but I mean, do you think now, like, like obviously before there's always been like little plays throughout, you know, the lower 48, just using that, 
that people would go into and, and due to commodities, it just made business sense or maybe it didn't. And then they just did it just because, but do you think more people are going to focus on the major basins where they, where they can expect decent returns and, and kind of get away from these little, you know, decent plays, I guess, if you will. I mean, I think if fairly large operator, that's the game plan, right? Yeah. I mean, we can, we're seeing that with Oxy. We're seeing that with Diamondback. They're consolidating their positions in, in the Delaware and in the Midland Basin, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're a smaller operator, I mean, it's it's tough, right? I mean, either you're going to get, you know, not tier one acreage in these basins, or you're going to try to get tier one acreage, you know, in, in these basins that the market might perceive as not the prime basins to be in. Yeah. Right. So it's just, I think it's not an easy time for, for smaller operators in general. Do you think of in, like in the future, do you think the oil and gas industry is going to, because there's obviously push politically to go, you know, go green and everything else. But like, do you think, do you think eventually like a lot of the smaller operators will kind of get phased out or either scooped up to where our industry is going to be like handled by like a handful of majors? Do you think that would ever happen? Or do you think there's always going to be room for like these small, you know, private equity companies to come up, drill, develop, prove, and sell off. Is that, do you think, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think there's always room for, for the smaller operators, right? If, if you can handle the amount of risk from, sure. from the financial side, that's really the question, Yeah. right? I mean, if you're private equity backed and let's say you have a time horizon of five years, I mean, it might be difficult, right? But if you, you know, you're funded, let's say privately, and the goal is to, to operate long-term, you know, and it's okay if you're not providing, you know, a crazy amount of shareholder return today, then yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. And in these other basins that I'm saying that aren't as seemingly desirable by the the market, I mean, there's still opportunity to make money there, right? It's just the question of, you know, does the market perceive it as the best place to be? That's all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The market and perception so, plays a huge role. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, I, I, I do think that there's going to be continued consolidation in the industry. And that's just, you know, we've seen that time and time again over time, right? Yeah. But there, you know, I don't know when when this will happen, but there will be a time when, you know, these smaller operators that do stick around, they're going to innovate, you know, and they're going to find a new way to push, let's say, these unconventionals another step forward and to extract more oil out of them, right? Yeah. And so I think it's just a matter of time. And that's just always how it's been, I think. Sure. No, that makes sense. Well, uh, before we wrap things up, I do have a couple more questions, more on the personal side, but do you have any daily routines or habits that help create a recipe for success in both your personal life and your career? I mean, in terms of daily habits, in, to me, it's more of a mindset, to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of like to approach things as how can I provide value, as much value to as many people as possible, whether it's, you know, my personal life or like professionally. Yeah. And so I think if you come with that mindset, yeah, it's easy to build the, the, the necessary habits and then it's kind of the circular thing. Okay. Where the habits feed the mindset and the mindset feeds the, feed the habits. That's a cool and So answer. that's kind of how I like to approach it. So where does the role in mindset come from? Because you didn't just wake up one day and have that <laughs> mindset. Like, how, is that something that you've sort of, like, is it genetically predisposed to have sort of like this, you're, you're wired that way? Or did you learn that from parents or friends so, or books? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I didn't always have that mindset. And I was, and I'm still am to this day, but I'm kind of obsessed with, I, I love hearing different people's stories. Okay. Right. Like if you listen to like Steve Jobs story or I think the one of the founders of Airbnb get, gave like a fireside chat about how he started Airbnb. Yeah. So if you listen to some of these like really, really successful business guys and you hear their stories, you'll find a lot of similarities, you know. And so I always thought that was fascinating. Right. And so I kind of realized, you know, when I started taking some of those people's habits and incorporating it into my own life, you know, it, it gave me fulfillment. 
Sure. And so I realized, hey, when I help people, it makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. And that's the number one thing that drives me, you know? Yeah, no, that's a really neat answer. And and, and everyone obviously is, is driven by different motives. And But like you said, if, if you take the top tier of, of what we would consider successful, whether it's in business or, you know, in whatever field they're in, there are some similarities. And, and some say, you know, you know, get up at five and, you know, if you win the morning, you win the day. And then some right. are like, you know, I, I sleep until 11, but, you know, if I can, you know, do this X, Y, Z, you know, this kind of helps me. But there, there's all there's there's similarities into it and which obviously being sort of mindful and, and open to at least absorb a lot of that, that that helps you create a recipe for success. So that that's neat, man. I, I certainly appreciate that type of answer. So what's something about you that not many people know about? I mean, everyone's got some unique secrets. I'm sure, you know, with being on LinkedIn, a lot of people know who you are. You got any sort of interesting fun facts that uh, we can hear about? Yeah. So this is kind of like a new development for me and my wife. Like, a, I think it was like about two months ago. You know, my wife loves kombucha. We buy a lot of it. It's okay. a little expensive. So I So I'm huge on kombucha. And my daughter loves nice. it. Nice. Yeah, that's, awesome, that's awesome. her treat. And so I, I try not to drink. I used to drink like one or two a day, but then okay. I've scaled back. So now it's, if I limit myself to one a day, I'm good. So it's either water <laughs> or kombucha. And my daughter kombucha. absolutely loves kombucha. Like she wants to drink nothing but kombucha. So. See, when you mentioned you weren't like a crazy big beer guy, yeah. I kind of thought like maybe he likes kombucha. Yeah, so. <laughs> I'm huge on that. So I'll let you continue, but I'm all ears now. So yeah, so a few months ago, you know, uh, we decided, why don't we try just brewing it ourselves at home? No way. And so we've kind of been experimenting with that and we're, kind of like big proponents of, of gut health in general. So any like fermented nice. foods, I love like fermented onion, pickles, what else? Like sauerkraut, kimchi. I mean, I love kimchi. So uh, yeah. so yeah, fermented foods, I think in general, are taste great and they're good for you. Yes. That's what I believe. But anyway, so, you know, while we were kind of experimenting with kombucha, we decided, you know, why don't we start a company and see if we can sell our own kombucha? No way. So we're kind of in the process of uh, doing that now. We're still kind of experimenting at home with different flavors and stuff like that. Okay. But yeah, and so that's kind of our, our latest experiment. Good for if you. If you're on uh, Instagram, you can search us up and kind of see our process. We'll put a link in the show notes. What's yeah, the handle? Great. It's Honeycomb Love. So it's honey and then K-O-M-B and then love and you can find us. Perfect. I'll find so, it on link or on Instagram and then I'll make sure I put the right handle in yeah, there so yeah. people can follow, including myself. Like I said, it's funny you mentioned gut health. So I'm part owner in KTX Nutrition out in Katy and, and we have a 21 day sort of gut recharge program that includes like, you know, specific probiotics. And then we also have in there, we do like colostrum, glutamine, and a few other components to, to help with that apple cider vinegar and just some of like the anti-inflammatories to help, you know, heal the gut. Because right now, especially out here in the North America, I mean, I would say almost like I would say 90 percent of people have gut issues and don't even know about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, let thy food be thy medicine kind of thing. And exactly. it's like start from the healing the gut and, and everything else. Hopefully, if you if you follow a proper diet and lifestyle or not even diet, I don't even say diet, but just just proper nutrition and lifestyle you know that's that would that's my vocation is is on the health path so when you said that yeah we actually started making our own probiotic with we started with a scientist and he gave us like live cultures and we're like making them in jars to give to people so yeah we're, we're experimenting with that kind of stuff too so very interesting we'll have to chat more about that but anyway you heard it starting their own kombucha company support the man here and uh, his wife. I think that's really neat. Like I said, we'll put the link in the show notes. Now it's time for a sponsor giveaway. Tendeka is giving away a mini portable projector, perfect for home, theater, boardroom, office, and pocket video. For a chance to win, click the link in the show notes. 
And Julie, why don't you uh, tell us about some upcoming events? Hey, it's Julie here, and I have a few OGGN announcements before heading into the events on deck. Street team, we are still taking volunteers for our street team. We're only asking for an hour of your time per week in exchange for perks such as free entry to our happy hours, shirts, networking with other young professionals in our group. The group is within Facebook, but you do not have to have a Facebook to join. Just send me an email. The link will be in the show notes and I can get you started. Our happy hours. We are actually moving to quarterly happy hours rather than monthly. So our next Houston happy hour, as well as Midland, will be in August or September. Be on the lookout for that date. You'll get an invite if you're on the list. If not, you can sign up on the list below. And then we are launching another happy hour in Denver in August. So if you're interested in that one, the link is in the show notes as well to be notified. We don't have a date or details for that yet, but they're coming up. Okay, now on to the events on deck. We have Golf for Good on June 11th, 2019 in Houston, Texas. All proceeds go to help Redeemed Ministries with our long-term recovery program and safe house to help victims of human trafficking become survivors. So mark your calendars and be ready to golf for good with Redeemed and our organizers, Global SEM Energy and Red M. For more information on how to sponsor or register, just click the link in the show notes. Data-Driven Drilling and Production Conference is June 11th through 12th in Houston, Texas. This is where Silicon Valley meets oil and gas. Register at the link in our show notes below. The Energy and Data Conference is June 17th through 19th in Austin, Texas. This forward-looking conference will include the latest in digital transformation trends as they relate to the energy sectors with topics such as machine learning and data management storage, oil and gas development and drilling production, and more. Link down below. Energy Exposition is June 26th through 27th in Gillette, Wyoming. The Energy Exposition is for those who would like to know more about procedures, technology, safety, environmental practices, and equipment used in the oil and gas industry. And again, the link is in our show notes. Argentina Oil and Gas and Energy Summit 2019 is on July 10th and 11th in Buenos Aires. This summit's actually the first and only official event for the Argentinian oil and gas and energy industries. It will present a unique platform for networking that will bring together existing and future operators in the oil and gas industry in Argentina and Latin America. Next up is the 2019 IPANM annual meeting that Mark, Jake, and Paige will actually be speaking at. This will be July 24th through 26th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this year's theme is Addressing Operator Needs in 2019. And next up is Desk and Derek Fort Worth second annual shoot for the future clay shoot. This clay shoot will be on July 26th in Decatur, Texas. And then last but not least, Summer Nape. This is going to be August 21st and 22nd. It's where the deals happen. Thanks, Julie. Much appreciated. 
I also want to mention the OKC Fin Feather and Fur, which will be happening Friday, October 11th in Oklahoma City. It's relatively new for the Oklahoma region, so go on to AADE's website and show them some love by registering, or you can hit up Courtney Strang with Inwell for more details. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old-timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for details, and if you're looking to get in shape, you know, maybe you got an upcoming Vegas trip or you're going to, to Mexico, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Thank you for listening to Oil & Gas Onshore. If you're looking for more info, visit oilandgasonshore.com. Roland, thanks again for joining me today. What would be the best way for people to reach out to you or at least kind of see your content? I know you're big on LinkedIn, which we'll put your link in the show notes. We'll put the kombucha in there. Is there anything else? I'm primarily on LinkedIn, to be LinkedIn. honest. Anything oil and gas, I'm on there. So you could reach out to me. Perfect. My name, my first name is kind of uniquely spelled, so it's kind of hard to miss. Yeah, well, it'll be when this episode launches, you'll, you'll have your name on there with awesome. a link to your LinkedIn. So yeah, very interesting. Certainly appreciate your time today. And that's a wrap, folks. And always remember, when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com.